Hello and welcome to Eric Hoy History and Legends. I'm Caleb. And I am Andrew. We are continuing with our series on the illustrious Mr. Ely S. Parker. Last episode, we talked about his early life, his education, his diplomacy with uh, the United States, and his job as a civil engineer. And where he finds himself now is in between jobs and at the brink of the Civil War in the United States breaking out. And I'm going to sum this up. What had happened was we saw all these uh, Native American peoples being removed from their land and forced to move west across the Mississippi and into the Oklahoma Territory. With all these Native peoples depopulated from the eastern United States that left all kinds of area that opened up for agriculture and farming. And this led to more tension between the northern and southern states because you had people joining to rush into these southern and western states. And they wanted to make sure that slavery was instituted in these places because then they could keep their balance of power higher in the U.S. Congress, where they could get more senators and more members of the House of Representatives to uh, make policies that would guarantee the rights of the southern territories and states. So that's where we find ourselves in, and states are rushing around to be declared slave or free, and then uh, Abraham Lincoln gets elected president, and all heck breaks loose. Now you may think, hey, Parker, he became a captain in the New York State Militia, right? So he's probably getting ready for war too. But no, he wasn't called upon for his services in engineering in the military or anything. So after he finished his contracts in uh, Illinois, he moved back to the Tonawanda Reservation and began farming. He quickly became very bored, Andrew. Uh, Farming was not the life for a man like him. Many of the Seneca were gearing up for war, looking to join the United States Army. Parker went and spoke to his father who, as you recall from the last episode, was a veteran from the War of 1812. And he received his blessing to take up the war path. But Parker, he wasn't going to go as a grunt. He wanted to go as a commissioned soldier. He'd already been a captain in the New York militia. So he asked the governor of New York for a commission, like a real commission, because apparently the militia commissions didn't really count. Uh, The governor of New York declined. So then what did he do? When things fail in New York, do what everybody else does. Go to a different state. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Uh, But he did uh, bypass New York State and try to go directly to the federal government. You know, he had some friends in high places in Washington at this point. So he said, hey, as captain in the New York State Militia, civil engineer, how about a commission? They declined. He got a letter from the Secretary of War, Edwin M. Stanton. Quote, Parker... This is a quarrel between white men in which you Indians are not concerned, unquote. Another federal official that he wrote to told him, quote, go back to your farm, unquote. And I'm sure they said it just as condescendingly. Some people um, may have mentioned to Parker that his lack of U.S. citizenship may be what's holding him back from getting this commission, uh, because this is the same time that we see he actually applied for citizenship. Oh, how'd that work out for him? Well, a lot like everything else to do with the government, he was turned down again. So from 1861 to 1862, he worked on his farm, and he also worked for the Indians on the reservation. He penned one letter to an old militia general, John Martindale, where he joked about being a bad farmer and eating a wife. He asked the general, quote, if he knew any strong, healthy, double-breasted woman 
that would want to be a farmer's wife. Can you say that again? A strong, healthy, double-breasted woman. That's what I thought you said. Did you say double-breasted? Yeah. Okay, then. We're just, this is a family-oriented <laughs> show after all, so uh, we'll just leave it at that. I don't know. It seems like pretty good uh, things to look for in a woman. <laughs> Was his 18... encounter with a lot of single? No, I'm not even going <laughs> to... Uh, you were saying? Parker has been farming for about two years now, and he's starting to think that uh, he's never going to get his chance. But he did still have a few friends looking out for him, Andrew. And they were a couple friends that were becoming pretty influential in the war, and Parker didn't even think to contact them. One of them was the jeweler in Galena, and the other was the grocer. They are now being known as General John Smith, and General Ulysses S. Grant. They actually said to themselves, you know who we could use right now is Parker. Parker was joined to the general staff with the rank of captain in May 25th, 1863. But you'll never guess, Andrew, he found another complication. And this one is coming from a different uh, place than you would think. If you remember, Parker was made a what? Sachem. And Sachem was a life appointment the Haudenosaunee checks and balances aspect of their government, sachems were the political leaders and they could not go to war. Right. You would have a war chief appointed and you would have your sachem and you would have your clan mothers uh, appointing each. And so now he wants to go to war, but he's a sachem. So everybody's like, wait a minute, can you legally, you know, legally from the Haudenosaunee standpoint, can you legally go to war? So a meeting was held, and they decided that since he would be a captain fighting in the War of the Whites, he would not be violating the checks and balances protocol. So he was able to keep his title as Sachem and receive his commission. And he was also able to keep his Red Jacket medal. And before he left, his Seneca family threw him a big party to see him off. And by big party, we mean hundreds of people. He arrived in Vicksburg, Mississippi, just four days before the Southern forces there surrendered. When he gets there, people really don't know what to make of him. It's said that he spoke from his throat and he barely moved his lips. Uh, they think that's because the Seneca language is actually very different from English in that uh, they have very few letters and consonants that come from the front of the mouth. A lot of them are, are gutturals. And in fact, the, the Seneca alphabet has far fewer consonants than English. Side, side note there. Anyway, but his English was flawless, even though he seemed like he was talking from deep down in his throat. In fact, he started looking down on the Confederates. He wrote in one of his letters that the people were, and this is a direct quote, poor white trash. I didn't know that white trash was like a thing that long ago. Did you? No. Uh, apparently rednecks at them. I'm sorry for our Southern listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I really am. But he said, these people can't even speak proper English. He's, English isn't even his first language. And he speaks it better than these yokels. He also looked down on the Southerners because he looked at their houses and he said, we've got nicer homes up on the reservation than these shacks down here in the South. Rumors started to spread through town because like Andrew said, people didn't really know what to make of Parker when he showed up in the war camp. 
a lot of people started to say, oh, I heard he's a Turk that came over uh, from Europe to help teach the Americans the ways of war. Other people said, no, that's not right. He's a freed black slave, but he's an educated one. So he's joined the army and received the commission because America is the land of opportunity for all people. Well, maybe somebody said that, probably not. But Parker, Andrew, he was built like a tank. We, we already posted a couple of the jokes that he had made as far as fighting and brawling. Uh, I think there's another story. I can't remember if it's later in this or if we didn't talk about it, but he, he picks one person up. He grabs him by the collar of his coat and lifts him up off the ground. And he was nearly 200 pounds of solid muscle. And if you remember what the people are like at the time, Andrew, people were a lot shorter back then. So he's five foot eight, which is kind of a taller person, but 200 pounds, that is an absolute beast of a man for back then. Parker, he started going over the books of Grant uh, and the other staff when he got there, and he instantly noticed that they were lacking in some key areas, particularly literacy. Many of Grant's staff members, they could write letters uh, you know, scribble letters out in orders, but that was about the extent of it. Parker's training as a lawyer and an engineer it immediately started fixing the logistical problems for Grant. And although initially Parker was only a captain, uh, he had the respect of the other soldiers. People began to call him the Indian or Grant's Indian. But when he spoke, people knew that whatever he said was as if it was the same authority coming from Grant. Vicksburg's surrender took place the exact same time that the Battle of Gettysburg is happening. And these two events together seem to be like the turning point of the war. Vicksburg is just huge because it, it splits the Confederacy. It cuts them off in the, in the Mississippi River and, and forces the Western states to, to pretty much be on their own after this. With this, Grant gets national attention and he's immediately made commander of all the Western forces. Shortly after joining Grant's army, Parker gets really sick. Uh, many people thought he was going to die. He was in bed for weeks, and he lost 30 pounds. But he bounced back just in time to prepare for the Battle of Chattanooga in November. A bombardment began from the Confederate position on Lookout Mountain. Parker was told the main job of an officer is to walk around like you look like you're not scared. Not walk around and and not be scared, but walk around and look like you're not scared. <laughs> Parker was standing with Grant when the battle began, and he had this to say. It is a matter of universal wonder in this army that General Grant himself was not killed, and that no more accidents occurred to his staff, for the general was always in the front, his staff with him, of course, and perfectly heedless of the storm, hissing bullets and screaming shells flying around him. His apparent want of sensibility does not arise from heedlessness, heartlessness, or vain military affection, but from a sense of the responsibility resting upon him when in battle. When at Ringgold, we rode for half a mile in the face of the enemy, under an intense fire of cannon and musketry. Nor did we ride fast, but upon an ordinary trot. And not once, do I believe, did it enter the general's mind that he was in danger. I was at his side and watched him closely. Another feature in the General Grant's personal moments are that he required no escort beyond his staff. So regardless of danger is he. Roads are almost useless for him. He takes shortcuts through fields and woods 
and swims his horse through almost any stream or the obstructions in his way, nor does it make any difference to him whether he has daylight for his movements, for he will ride from breakfast until one or two in the morning, and that too without eating. The next day he will repeat the dose until he is finished with the work. Now such things come upon the staff, but they have learned how to bear it. That sounds miserable. After the battle, Parker wrote the congratulations to the troops. After Chattanooga, the army moved to Nashville, where the general staff went on an adventure across enemy lines for an important mission. There was a man there, a man named Andrew Jackson Donaldson, the adopted son of Andrew Jackson. He was actually his nephew, but he became his heir and adopted son. And Andrew, this super secret mission, they had one goal, to say hello to him and then return. I don't know if this is really a a good use of riding across enemy lines, but that's exactly what they did. Donaldson was actually a a very well-known political figure of the time, and uh, he was very well-connected. So it it would have been a big deal. And And the Donaldsons were very loyalist even though they were living in the, the border state at the time, they, they stuck with the Union. So they went and had a chat with him and then returned back to the Federalist lines. And when they got back, Grant received word of a new rank that had been invented called Lieutenant General. Instantly, people started to get angry. Oh, he was a general and now he's being demoted to Lieutenant General? This is unfounded and this is disrespectful. And then somebody came over and explained, well, actually the Lieutenant General is higher than the current general position. Why is it higher? (laughs) Who knows? I tried to look it up. It has something to do with uh, two different countries, ranking systems and so forth. It's not that confusing, but it was for me. But, But basically Lieutenant General is higher. So he's like becoming like the main general of the army, but it's lieutenant general for some reason. We'll have some military person probably chime in and explain it to us. So Grant was moving up in the world. He was kind of at his peak of popularity. The war was going good for him. And he was going to move his general staff up with him. While traveling to meet up with Grant, Parker was able to swing by the reservation to see his father. And he was glad he did, because shortly after this, his father passed away. Ely was heartbroken and said to his friend, General John Smith, quote, without my father, I feel afloat without an anchor in the wide world. Grant's star was rising, and Grant deserved the promotion, but it was mainly because all the other generals were grossly incompetent, (laughs) bungling stuff. Uh, They refused to follow Lincoln's orders and directly engage the enemy. They putz around things. And so when Grant was promoted and told to report to Washington, he was told, you're given this because I'm expecting you to actually take on General Lee. I'm so sick of people just dancing around this guy. Can we just finish him off? On March 18th, 1864, Grant issued the first orders of his promotion. And in that first act, he promoted Captain Ely Parker to his assistant adjunct general, which is, a, in other words, it's a, it's a battlefield commission, which again, we can go into explaining all that, but I'm not going to. Grant soon had his new army 
And in the first week of May, 1864, he would square off against the great General Lee. This is what would be known as the Battle of the Wilderness, an incredibly bloody affair. No one army came out on top. It was pretty much a stalemate. Uh, Grant and his generals, though, were on horseback in the woods on the night of the 7th, getting their forces ready for what would soon the following day be the two-week Battle of Spotsylvania. We talked before about how Grant would just take shortcuts off the road, off the path, just go anywhere. And on this particular night, Grant got lost in the dark. Some of his staff started looking around and be like, General, do you know where you're going? And he's like, uh, actually, no. And then he said to his staff, do you guys know how to get back? And they're like, no, we were just following you, not really paying attention. But Ely, being a guy that's grown up in the woods, says uh, he knows the way and turned the men around and got them back to the main army. It wasn't until years later that Parker was at some event and he met with a former Confederate officer and uh, they were swapping war stories. And he mentions that one time he saw General Grant. In fact, his men saw him in uh, his entourage coming down a path late at night. And they got everyone in position and they were getting ready to ambush him and capture him alive. But the Southerner told Ely that they never knew why, but suddenly Grant just stopped and turned around and they lost their chance to catch him. Can you imagine if Lincoln's brand new general, the one that's supposed to take on Lee, gets captured? without firing a shot. Ely acted like Grant's Swiss Army pocket knife. He could do correspondence. He did logistics. He worked engineering. He took care of legal matters. He was just knowledgeable in all these various fields. Uh, One funny story is uh, there was a Southern woman who refused to leave her home. And she was telling Parker, I, I can just see her screaming and yelling at him, you know, my husband is the commander of nearby Confederate forces, and he'd never fire on this house. So, you know, I'm not leaving. And so Parker said, hmm, your husband's the commander? So he told the woman, you can stay, madam. And he had his men start constructing earthworks to put the main cannon battery fortification right in front of her house, knowing that uh, her husband would never order them to fire on it. Uh, Parker was uh, not one who hid behind the lines, mainly because Grant wouldn't, so he had to be with him. But one time Ely was riding with a, a companion and he was looking over the horizon and he saw a cannon fire. He could see the ball getting closer and closer, you know, from a long ways off, you got a little time to actually see it coming at you. And so as he sees it whizzing towards him, he has just enough time to dismount and slide down the side of his horse. And as he's going down, the cannonball literally grazes the sleeve of his coat. As the Union Army was moving to the James River, Grant became increasingly angered at uh, his other lesser generals because They were refusing to work together. Everyone was looking out for him and his own men. He asked Harry Wilson, the chairman of military affairs, and coincidentally one of the future vice presidents, what was wrong with the Union Army? Harry Wilson replied, there's much wrong with it, but I can tell you how to fix it. How, Grant said. Call Parker, give him a scalping knife and a tomahawk, 
and the cheapest jug of whiskey in camp and tell him to go get Lee. Now, that sounds kind of like a, a really rude, racist thing to say, doesn't it? It, it does, but, and it is. But at the same time, it tells you that they thought that Parker might actually be able to do it. Yes, and there actually is some context to this joke. You see, uh, he actually knew Parker and was an acquaintance with him. And he said this joke in reference to, some, to an encounter he had with Parker a few days before. You see, apparently, in a past battle, Wilson had met Parker, and Parker was a little bit inebriated. Parker told Wilson, if you give me a squad of horse, I'll have Lee at your headquarters by dinner. So this kind of racist statement is actually a joke referring to the fact that a few days before, Parker said, you want General Lee? I'll go get you General Lee. Jokes may have been made at uh, Parker's expense, but he was involved in more than a few uh, humorous shenanigans himself. You got to tell this story. This one's hilarious. This is probably the greatest prank ever done by leading military generals in the middle of a bloody conflict. The story goes like this. A new commissioner comes into camp and demands to see General Grant. So Parker runs into Grant's tent, puts on his uniform on the post, and sits in Grant's chair. So the commissioner opens the tent flaps and he sees Parker sitting there in Grant's chair and he didn't know what to say. The other officers, they, they come up to him and they whisper in his ear and they say, why aren't you talking? That's Grant right there. And the commissioner's like, uh. And then they whisper in his ear and they say, don't you realize Grant's been fighting so long, so hard that he's been horribly sunburned. So then the commissioner apologizes. Uh, Sorry, General, uh, I didn't recognize you. He gives his report and leaves. After he leaves, the general staff and Grant included all burst into laughter. <laughs> oh, that's so great. Uh, can you picture, you know, General Grant, the guy on our $100 bill doing something like that? $50 bill. Who's on the 100 Oh, Benjamin Franklin. That's right. One of our lesser known presidents. <laughs> On August 26, 1864, Grant requested Parker be promoted to military secretary and given the commission rank of lieutenant colonel. He received the promotion, but the official commission had mysteriously gotten lost in the mail. So this most likely was another one of those government things where they say, well, he can be acting lieutenant colonel, but, you know, we don't know if we really want to send him an official government document stating that he is one. Whether the commission existed or not, he was then an acting lieutenant colonel, and some of the newer staff members of Grant began to uh, be a little jealous of Parker. All of a sudden, this Indian was now their colonel, so all these majors and captains had to be subservient to a Seneca Indian. Parker, he just shrugs them off. He said this, we have the headset kind of work to get along with these new people we are associated with. They look upon us with jealous eyes and imagine, at least make one believer, we are a set of know-nothings. However, we carry a stiff upper lip and make them feel our power. Nice, nice. 
he seems he seems pretty confident with himself. We see in the past with uh, certain people put in these horrible situations of discrimination and things like that. Like I'm picturing George Washington. If you remember, uh, he was a militia officer and he had this this in inferiority complex where he needs this commission because he feels like he's beneath everybody else. Parker, he just feels so confident in his strength and his education and his intelligence that he just basically shrugs everybody off and does, I'll make it on my own. So he's saying that these people can be jealous because I'll make them feel my power. And with this new promotion, uh, Parker basically became Grant's right-hand man at this point because he's now the secretary, basically the secretary general of the army. Any paperwork for anything to do with the army is coming through him. Anything that needs to be done, Grant is communicating to Parker. And anything uh, logistical, Parker is passing on to Grant. In 1864, that was kind of an important year, not only in the war, but uh, for America, because that was an election year. The general staff needed to find a way to make sure that they retained all of their government backing, because it could be a horrible disaster, Andrew, if a new president and new senators and new congressmen all got elected and they all decided, yeah, we want to stop this war thing. It's too expensive. Or they want, uh, you guys can keep fighting, but we're going to hold back on funding and things like that. Grant and his general staff had to find a way to get these soldiers a break so they could go home and vote. Even though Parker himself couldn't vote, he took this opportunity to get a little R&R and go home and, and visit the Seneca land. He reconnected with his family, got updates on everything else, uh, all the other Seneca serving as soldiers in different states and areas. And although he enjoyed his visit, he felt a little different uh, this time. He'd been with the Union Army for several years, and many people were starting to grumble and complain to him, saying, you know, your true place is here. You're not fulfilling your sachem duties when we appointed you to that. You've been gone a while. And also he was getting some of this, um, and I, I can identify with this, having lived in other cultures for many years and then returning home, uh, he had what's called reverse culture shock when you come back to your home environment and things have changed. I, I can just remember coming home and it was weird that the radio stations were different or that new buildings were up that weren't there before. And he's dealing with uh, similar things like that. And so he doesn't really fit in at home anymore because he's taken on a lot of these uh, American customs. So after visiting his family, Parker meets with the head of Indian Affairs in Washington, uh, goes over a few things, and then heads back to Army headquarters. In March 1865, President Lincoln stayed with his personal staff for more than two weeks with General Grant's staff. They would dine with them almost every night. And Honest Abe made a point when he came into the dining room to sit next to Parker at meals. They talked a lot, uh, particularly about Indian affairs and the things that the Seneca and other Native American peoples are struggling with. And Parker was encouraged to hear how sympathetic Lincoln was to the troubles of the Indians. Lincoln told him that once the war is over, he was hopeful that the U.S. would make amends to all the injustice that had been done to the Indians. Within two weeks, 
the most honorable and moral president that the U.S. had ever known would be murdered. Lee's army was losing men at all these engagements that Grant was throwing at him, and he just couldn't replace it. Even though there were no decisive battles and they both walked away with no person having the, the upper advantage, Union soldiers just kept arriving every day. Smaller groups would join up with Grant and then they'd start to spread out and they were encircling the Army of Virginia. Lee tries an attempt to break out of this trap and it fails. Lee just starts feeling it close in and, and he writes Grant finally and says, what would be the terms of surrender? And this is after rebuffing Grant many times, uh, refusing to surrender. Parker was on hand and he writes up the conditions of surrender and sends them via courier back. And this is basically what the terms were. All soldiers are to surrender, and then we will immediately parole them. That means they're going to leave their guns, but they can keep all their other property and their horses and go home to their farms, plant, take care of their families. If you're an officer, you can keep your sidearm and your sword, and we'll let General Lee choose the time and place of surrender. And that brings us to the surrender at Appomattox. Grant and his staff came to the small town on April 9th, 1865. And there, Grant's staff made introductions with uh, General Lee and his staff. But when General Lee saw this man standing next to Grant, this Ely Parker, he just stood there and stared at him, bewildered and confused. If you recall, Andrew, a lot of the people in the army thought that uh, maybe Parker was a Turk, and some even said that he was a freed. Negro slave. We don't know this for sure, but a lot of historians speculate that at first, Lee confused Parker with being an African-American. And he was offended that they had an African-American officer there at his surrender. He thought that they were basically mocking him. Or that he wasn't even an officer. They just put some uniform on a guy and just did it to yeah, rub it in his face. This is all speculation, of course, but th these could be possible things that were going through uh, Lee's head. Eventually, uh, Lee figures it out. Someone tells him and says, this is, you know, Ely Parker, and uh, he's of the Seneca Nation. And then Lee's whole demeanor changes, and allegedly, he's to have said, it's good to have one real American here, to which Parker is said to have responded, sir, we are all Americans. And again, some historians debate whether this was really said or not, but I think it's really cool. So even if it's made up, I'm going to say it's real. And whether it's said or not, it should be said. I mean, if there's one thing that Andrew and I have tried to get across in the five years we've been doing this podcast is that quote right there. You know, you don't even have to put the Americans in, but the idea, you know, is being all inclusive. We are all equal. We are all humans. We're all created by the same person. The terms were discussed back and forth, and Grant asked one of his assistants to draw up the Articles of Surrender. So he takes out a piece of paper, and uh, I can just picture him there. He's shaking. He's sweating. He's trying to write. He writes half a line, crosses it out, gets halfway through another paragraph, crosses it out. Then it's illegible, and you can't read it. He's just so nervous, and also he didn't have the experience of, of Parker, uh, eventually, he balls up the sheet of paper and throws it on the ground. 
finally, after four attempts, he looks at Parker and he says, you have to write this. I can't do it. He uses what's known as a manifold book. It's kind of like an early carbon copy notebook. Sometimes you get these, uh, I used to get them in the lunch line where they'd give you a little ticket and then they keep a copy. They'd give you a copy of a receipt. It was like that. You could make three different copies when, when you had a piece of carbon paper between each one and you'd write the. Oh, so it's like those, those receipt books where you write yeah. once, but it, it puts it on several pages so everybody yeah. can have a copy. The receipt books are special paper these days, um, but back then they had actual carbon paper between each one that would help put a, put a copy on each side. So this way you could make three copies of a letter at a time. And so Parker writes up the terms. Uh, one copy went to Lee's men and one was put in an envelope to be sent to Washington, D.C. And then as for the original, the first page, well, Ely took that baby, tucked it right into his jacket pocket and held on to that. I, I think that even he knew what a momentous occasion this was. He realized right then and there what a huge part of history he, he was making. And he wanted to make sure that, that he had a piece of history from that. As uh, Lee left the house and rode away, all of the Union Army began cheering. Huzzah! Huzzah! But Grant at once sent word for them to be quiet. He said, the Confederates were now once again our countrymen. We do not want to exalt over their downfall. Very generous thing to say. On April 13th, Grant and Parker returned to Washington and Parker was given an honorary promotion, making him a full colonel. The following day was Good Friday, and they had a meeting with President Lincoln. Parker showed off his red jacket medal and gave the president all the history behind it. It was left for display in New York with a description of red jacket and also a description of Parker and his services to America. And also a brief mention on how New York wouldn't let him take the bar exam. <laughs> you know, he, he's got all these people now. And he said, hey, this might be a good opportunity to air this old grievance. So everybody's looking at this medal and, and Parker's one of the heroes of the hour and they're reading this. And many people start to make hell for all the New York politicians to change the law to let Parker become a lawyer. And by this time, Red Jacket is already a legend. Even among non-Seneca people, uh, citizens of New York are, are hearing the stories about Red Jacket and his entire life and how he, he fought against the United States, but then became a, a man of peace. And so when you see his, his heir, I mean, he's not a direct descendant, but in, in the Seneca mindset, he kind of is because he's a nephew. And, and that's, that's more on the hereditary line. People really are making a big fuss. How can you mistreat a relative of Red Jacket like this? And look at what all he's done for our country, saving it in the Civil War. Parker and Grant said their goodbyes. Parker was heading back to New York, but uh, Grant and his wife and President Lincoln had a date together, a double date. They were going to the Ford Theater that evening. Oh, I hear that's really nice. But uh, apparently, uh, we've all read and heard things about Lincoln's wife. She was a little bit eccentric, and Grant's wife and Lincoln's wife did not get along, so Grant apologized and said that he and his wife would not be coming. Actually makes Parker one of the last people to see Abraham Lincoln before he is assassinated. The fact that Grant was also supposed to be at the play 
threw a gear in Booth's plan because he intended to murder the head union general and the president of the United States. And, and the conspiracy was even bigger than that because he had other people that were to uh, kill other high-ranking people, like uh, the Secretary of State was attacked that night too, and, and he lived. His family was able to fight off the intruder, and then another guy was supposed to attack another uh, high-ranking person, and he chickened out. So this, this was a, a legitimate um, coup to try and absolutely kill all these top-ranking people and try and uh, cause mayhem to, to revive the Confederacy, which by this point was on its last death keel. So we're going to leave it at that and figure out what happens next in the aftermath of the Civil War and the aftermath of the Lincoln assassination. Thank you very much for listening, uh, everybody. It's great to, to be back again, and I hope you will join us next time as we finish up our series on Ely Parker. Be sure to like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. You can send us a message. But most of all, leave us an awesome five-star review with flowing, wonderful words. But what we'd love even more is to annoy all your friends and family members and put us on whenever you go on a trip somewhere so that they can listen to us. I mentioned in the last episode, I asked the Mohawk gentleman who was listening to us, I said, how'd you hear about us? He said, well, I was in a car ride somewhere and, and someone was playing you guys. So it was like, tell your friend, good job. Goodbye, everyone.